What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. Do you ever dream of walking out of your job and starting your own business? The idea is intriguing, but for most of us, the notion is followed by doubt in the form of what if. What if I'm not good enough? What if no one buys my product? What if I fail? Today's guest did just that. Chili Chilino left a secure job with a growing company to start his own venture, to chase a passion he didn't even realize he had, and it failed. Chili has always had the spirit of an entrepreneur, but he never really understood how to leverage it. For years, he worked for other companies, helping them develop marketing strategies, forecast growth, and move into new markets. He was clearly capable of growing and operating a business, but he always found himself doing it for someone else, building someone else's dream. Part of that was because Chili wasn't clear on his path, on his dream. He knew he loved business and he wanted to build his own venture, but in what industry? Providing what products or services? That is until Chili realized his love for craftsmanship. In a moment, Chili's life was on a new trajectory. He was going to build things with his hands. So he left his secure job and founded Orwood Solutions. Exciting, right? Taking the leap, trusting your own skills, and pouring yourself into something you love. But then the pandemic hit. Clients lost jobs, materials costs went through the roof, and Chili had to close the doors on Orwood Solutions. So how do you rise from the ashes? How do you take a failure, refocus your mindset, and turn it into a success story? Let's find out. This is the story of Chili Chilino. I hope you enjoy it. Chili, welcome to the Right Place Right Now podcast, my man. How are you doing? Fantastic. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? We getting are through, well. Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I heard of getting through and doing well. So at least one of you is just charging ahead. Well, I wasn't going to be as honest as Brandon, I guess. <laughs> Everybody's always fine. I'm sick of that crap. How are you really doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I never <laughs> ask somebody that unless I genuinely want to know and care <laughs> how they're doing. Like, That's the hard part. Do I care? Yeah. If I don't care, I I've, have trained myself to not ask. It's <laughs> good practice. Yeah. Smart. So we want to bring you on the show. You are one of our buddies, longtime friends, however, also very entrepreneurial in spirit. You are a craftsman. So tell us what Orwood Solutions is and a little bit how you got into craft work. Yeah. So Orwood Solutions is a custom craft workshop. It's a it's not a massive production facility. It's quite frankly me in my shop. Um, and I work very closely one-on-one with clients to create solutions for life issues. Maybe that's, you know, where you dine or a storage issue or um, the things I really love are like, I have this thing that I refuse to get rid of, but I have no use for it. Can you make it useful? I really love doing stuff like that. Um, So it's very unique one-off projects. And the vast majority of what I do is um, I try to be very mindful about my materials that I use. So I use a lot of reclaimed or repurposed materials. 
uh, as well as what's called urban forested wood. So it's wood that comes from people's uh, front yards or local parks that usually goes to the landfill or through a chipper and becomes mulch. I work with some folks who help turn that into usable lumber uh, for beautiful furniture and architectural pieces and stuff like that. How do you even find out that urban forestry is a thing? I, I really honestly ran across it in a program I was watching. I heard about somebody doing this out east. I think they were in Ohio. Um, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. I wonder if there's anybody here that does that. And so after quite a bit of searching, I finally found a place uh, like three years ago that, that does this. And it's become a little bit more prevalent through the pandemic when lumber prices went sky high. The other thing that started selling like hotcakes was these portable home milling operations. <laughs> and yep. Joe Blow was like, man, I lost my job, but I got some trees I can cut down. I mean, it's the next logical step, right? <laughs> yeah, why not? You got to use what you have. So my kind of my kind of tagline for Orwood Solutions is uh, reclaiming materials, reclaiming craftsmanship. Um, and that's because, you know, like I said, I, I really focus on that reuse of materials. But the other huge focus I have is on keeping these uh, age old practices of craft work alive and prevalent in our communities, because I think they're incredibly important and, and show a lot of value in a lot of different ways. So um, like I said, I don't have a big fancy production shop. The couple of power tools that I have in my shop are um, all for milling material uh, from scrap into like usable lumber. Uh, but after I get to that point, it's all hand tools. So how did you learn wood craftsmanship? I feel like that's kind of a lost art and not a whole lot of people are doing it, especially by hand. How did it come about in your life and how did you actually learn the skill? So I learned some of the basics of what I know um, in woodwork from, you know, basic carpentry stuff from my dad when I was a kid. Um, you know, we built out our deck, we built out our basements, multiple, you know, so I learned kind of that basic carpentry stuff from him. Um, and then I do uh, metal work as well. And a lot of that I learned from my grandpa when I was a kid. My grandpa and I were super close and he was, he was like my hero. And he used to do old school body work like way back in the day, like lead body filler. Um, he taught me how to do that stuff and how to weld and braze and things like that. So I had kind of this very rudimentary base from a pretty young age. And then from that, I, I've realized I have, I have an affliction, um, which is that I have zero uh, concept of what my personal limits are. I just see something and go, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, a lot of what I've learned, I really just picked up by, by doing and by being a student of life. I, I'm a horrible student when it comes to a classroom. I'm, I'm terrible for a lot of reasons, but I'm an excellent learner. And so I just engage with people that can teach me things. And I engage with resources. I mean, it used to be just books encyclopedia, stuff like that. Now we have, you know, YouTube and all these amazing resources on the internet that I can just absorb and learn uh, new tips and tricks and, you know, converse with other craft workers to forward myself and help forward them. YouTube. You can learn how to do anything on YouTube. 
including ancient hand wood crafting. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's pretty amazing the the people who are willing to put themselves out there for free just to just to share what they love and and they're passionate about. And and I started doing that too, you know, via my YouTube channel. Um I I kind of saw a um a a niche that was missing in that old school uh, type of like wood shop that we had, you know, we were some of the last generation to have shop class and it was, it was fantastic. You, you learned so much from that. Um, so I kind of created a, uh, a series of videos uh, to kind of walk people through a shop class, um, no matter what age you are with very basic tools and just start to learn the basics of woodworking. So you mentioned that there's a lot of other people in this craft, if you know where to find them, what kind of community, I mean, is it a pretty tight knit community? People are pretty good about sharing with each other, like skills and knowledge. And, uh, what is it, what is the, the woodworking community consist of? It's, uh, it is vast and expansive. That is for sure. And it, it encompasses all sorts of folks, um, from, you know, your, your typical, you know, stereotypical, what you think of, you know, old white guy who's retired piddling around with stuff in his garage. You've got everything from that to, uh, you know, very young entrepreneurial, uh, people, you know, more similar to myself who are really just passionate about keeping craft alive. Um, and there is a never ending exchange of, of information and ideas and, everybody is just really passionate about not losing what took centuries to gain. So for instance, the, the idea of dovetails, which everybody seems to be pretty darn familiar with now, um, which is a, a type of joinery you do um, oftentimes in drawers. Um, and it's just, it's a mechanical locking joint that you can't pull it apart. It was invented uh, by the Egyptians in about 2000 BC. I mean, it's a very, very old tactic. What? Yeah. And it was almost all but lost um, when we hit the Industrial Revolution. We started having machines make joints. We found ways that we could make a joint just as strong, but a machine couldn't really do a dovetail. It had to do it a little bit differently. So other joints became more prevalent. And you know, through the community of woodworkers and people who are passionate about this craft. Now, man, people are, are throwing dovetails where they don't even make sense. <laughs> um, it's, it's back, it's alive, it's prevalent, people know what they are. And that's the kind of information that gets passed around um, within our communities. And recently, that's been even more so a push towards working with hand tools. Um, and that's been thanks to some uh, really amazing folks from an older generation that, you know, have shows on PBS or really awesome, you know, YouTube channels that have really shared this information just for free. It's just there. Uh, and they're just begging people, please take this up and keep it alive. How did you get into this? Because this hasn't always been your career path. You were not a craftsman by trade but went down that. In hindsight, I probably should have been all along. Uh, but when I was in, when I was in middle school, 
Um, I did a uh, immersion week experience and it was all based around entrepreneurship and starting a small business. Uh, a few of my friends and I were really curious about what that entailed. So that's what we did. And I really, at that point, came up with this idea of I wanted to own my own snowboard manufacturing facility. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to be the next Jake Burton because I was a passionate snowboarder that persisted all through high school. Um, as I was uh, competing and I was a sponsored rider for a little while, that sport progressed much faster than I did. So that was short lived. Um, but I still had this dream, you know, of owning my own snowboard shop. And so that's what I went to college for. Um, that's where I met uh, Brandon and Travis is I went to Johnson Wales University and my undergrad is in entrepreneurial studies. Um, there were not a lot of colleges at that time that really offered that. And there was one in my backyard. So uh, that's what I went to school for. And I was absolutely blessed while I was in college uh, to have an amazing mentor relationship with another local entrepreneur. Uh, her name was Diana Nelson. She ran a really awesome toy shop in Denver. And she took me under her wing. And basically every semester, she asked me what classes I was taking. And then she put me to work in her business, putting those things to use practically, uh, which was priceless. Uh, you, you cannot ask for better experience than that. So I took a, I took a wee detour after college. I, I realized towards the end of college, even though I had this really magnificent business plan and everything put together for this snowboard shop, uh, that I, I didn't really like the industry anymore. Um, it was becoming very, very commercial. And it was only, you know, these, you know, few big manufacturers that were really doing anything. Almost none of the manufacturing was happening in the U.S. anymore. It was all going overseas. And it was just really commercialized and ugly. And I didn't like it anymore. I was also doing youth leadership through high school uh, at my home church. I was our high school youth leader my entire time through high school, uh, which was interesting being in, you know, being the leader of kids who are, you know, one to four years younger than you. <laughs> um, that was I don't know what my church was thinking. It was a terrible idea in, in hindsight. <laughs> when you're in leadership of anybody, it's not the best idea. Yeah, it's probably valid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really, I really was passionate about that. And I was feeling called to do more of that. So I went to seminary, which is <laughs> yeah. for anybody who's not familiar, basically Jesus school. It's, it's a post-grad work to become a pastor. Um, and I was going to be a youth pastor. Uh, so I spent a year at seminary until I realized, yeah, this is, this is a bad idea. Um, I do not have all of the gifts required for this. Um, and so I stepped out of seminary. But I met my wife while I was there, so I was still there. <laughs> uh, I got married right after our first year of seminary. So I had to stick around for three more years while my wife finished. And it was pretty awesome because while I was there, uh, the seminary we were at, Wartburg uh, Seminary, had a ropes course on it, a high ropes course. So like telephone poles with, you know, ropes and activities and all sorts of fun stuff. And I ended up taking over that um, and being the director of experiential ed uh, at the seminary and adjoining camp and also worked at a few other camps in the area to help with experiential ed and learned a lot 
about uh, leadership and, you know, team forming. Uh, you know, I got to work with local fire departments and things like that in their training. Um, and that was pretty awesome. But towards the end of my wife's stint in seminary, I, you know, I'd really needed to find employment. <laughs> so I ended up working for a mechanical service provider. So we worked on really big, like mechanical systems, like HVAC systems in hospitals, industrial boilers in manufacturing facilities, like boilers that we could park a service van inside of. I mean, they were huge, you know, 250 pound steam generating boilers, um, which I knew nothing about. Uh, but it was convenient because the company I started working for knew everything about that and nothing about business. <laughs> so that's what they really needed help with. Um, so I kind of helped them come up with some expansion plans, you know, ended up opening an office out here in Colorado for them, ran that for a number of years, and unfortunately had a had a disheartening departure experience is I think probably the best way to say it. And I was pretty, yeah, I was, I was defeated at that point. I really was defeated. And what I knew is that I didn't want to work for somebody else. Um, I was completely done with that. And I, I needed to go back to my entrepreneurial roots. So towards the end of my stint there, uh, I did a project of my first really large scale wood and metal project on the side which was to create a, a communion rail for the church that my wife was serving at as their pastor. She'll probably kill me for this, but it came about because our, our altar space was lofted two steps and she had a really rough Sunday, uh, one Sunday, where she had a funeral right after Sunday service. So she was up at the altar trying to like light candles and get stuff ready before this funeral started. And she went to turn around and step off the altar space, didn't realize how close she was to the edge, stepped off sideways and had her arm out to catch herself, which meant she hyperextended her elbow, broke her arm, dislocated her elbow and got a wicked nasty concussion when she hit her head on the side of a pew. It's not a good Sunday. It was a fun Sunday. Yeah. So I talked to the council and I was like, hey, if you guys are cool with this, I'll totally build a rail, you know, to put up an, a communion rail. They were all for it. And I already had this grand vision in my head of what I wanted. And I'd never done anything remotely like it before. This piece had uh, panels, metal panels out of square tubing. The square tubing had arches rolled in them. Um, four of the panels had relief carved wood panels in them. I'd never carved a day in my life, but we had a guy in our congregation who was a master carver and uh, he had Parkinson's, so he couldn't carve anymore. So I went to him and I said, hey, Tom, here's the deal. Here's what I want to do. If you can be the brains, I'll be the hands. And he was thrilled. He was like, yes, totally. I ended up inheriting like all of his carving tools that he had left. He just like gave me everything. And I got to spend a lot of great time with him learning how to do this old school hand carving. So after I got that project finished, which was like 400 and some hours of work, I was like, this is what I want to do. 
I'm going to, I'm going to take it way back to the beginning of that story. And you said, okay, I probably always knew that I should have been a woodworker. Yep. Speak into that a little, how did you know? And what, what happened along the way that caused you to not follow that path right away? You know how like you have an experience later in life, like let's say, let's talk about the brewery for a second here, Travis, you know, now that you've started a brewery, now that you've gone through this project of building out FH East, you notice things that you never noticed before when you go to other breweries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You see things that you're like, oh yeah, I never, I never would have noticed that before I saw it before but I never realized what it was. It's the same kind of thing in, in life period. I've, I saw all these signs throughout my life that I was good at this and I enjoyed this, but it wasn't until I had the bad experience uh, working for someone else and doing something that caused me to hate life, frankly. I was massively depressed. It took that for me to, to look back on those things and understand what they were. So now in hindsight, I can say, yeah, I, I totally should have been doing this. Like for instance, when I was in middle school, we had a, <laughs> we had this science class that we, we built catapults for and to learn about physics and, and the math in physics. And so we were supposed to build a really small scale one in class out of balsa wood. And then we made one as a class that was like full size, but I was working on this little balsa one in, in class and I was getting frustrated with it. So I asked my, my teacher, if I could take it home and finish it at, at home, bring it in the next day. He's like, yeah, that's fine. So I went home. I uh, connected a wagon to the back of my bike and drove it to home Depot, loaded up with two by fours, came home, uh, took a bunch of the tools out of my dad's garage and I built like a four foot tall ballista. How old were you? <laughs> that launched, uh, I was 11, 12, somewhere in there. That's some yeah. initiative right there. And uh, hey. so I built a like a four foot tall ballista that launched softballs. <laughs> and when my dad got home that night, I was like, hey, can you drive me to school tomorrow? Because I need you to take this in your truck. That's the my cannon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ended I ended up one getting an A. First of all, that's the important <laughs> part of the story that I want to highlight. Is I totally I totally aced that project. However, it may have cost a couple hundred bucks when we launched it at school and I broke a window at the adjacent apartment building. That's all right. You learned something from it. So, do you do you think coming back to that question, do you think that it requires the bad experience or is there a way that we can proactively avoid the bad experience and really embrace the good in that. I, I think it just requires a catalyst. Um, it requires something to provide context to the things you're seeing. If if you see uh, a if you see a car, if if you're from if you are raised in the middle of the Amazonian jungle and you see a car for the first time and nothing else, you have no context to understand what that thing is. Once you start to see people driving it, 
or you yourself get a ride in that car, you now have a catalyst to provide con uh, context for what you're seeing. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad experience. Um, it just has to be an experience that provides clarity to what you've seen. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Is that something that we have control over? That catalyst? Can we create those catalysts so that we can um, oh, heavens and, yes. And how? Heavens yes. Okay. What are what what is, what are some things that people can do to create that catalyst instead of waiting for it to happen? Because I feel like if you wait for that catalyst, typically it's going to be a bad experience. Just by default, if you wait long enough, you're not going to just have a, a great experience that teaches you this insight. How do we create that insight and that catalyst so that we don't have to wait for it to be a bad experience? Well, if that you know, if, if we subscribe to the fact that that catalyst is experience, is an experience of some kind, then the best thing you can do is to seek out as many different and varied experiences as you can in your life. Um, just experience as much of life as you can. Reach out and grab it because some of it will eventually come to you. But like you said, it may not be in a way you want it to. So instead of waiting for something to come slap you in the face, go out and grab it. Uh, you've never, never shot a bow before? Great. Well, why don't you go to an archery range and see what it's like to shoot archery? Um, never played golf before? Go to the local putt Don't do putt. it. Just play putt-putt. Who cares? Don't give it. Oh, do it. <laughs> putt-putt is the best. No, so uh, I think what you're saying is brilliant. So what you're the catalyst is some sort of experience that'll help you connect the dots and put those dots into some context of it basically puts the puzzle pieces together for you, gives you the vision. It's like having the, the box of the puzzle. I see what the end game is almost now that I have all the pieces, but you said that's if you subscribe to experience being the catalyst, are there other things that could be that catalyst for us? If we're not, maybe I'm not keen on experiences. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Your life must suck. <laughs> uh, I, I know that there are people who don't necessarily believe that that being exposed to a larger percentage of the experience of life is what gives you clarity. There are people who subscribe to maybe a certain, uh, you know, religious practice or, you know, another sort of. Mm, I guess it really is largely religious, no matter what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, they have a set of subscribed values and actions that, that that's what, you know, the meaning in life is supposed to come from. And so some people don't necessarily agree with this, you know, thought or point of view. They think that, no, I have everything I need if I only focus on it, if I only am diligent about it, if I only practice it correctly, then I have what I need. And I, I just think that's narrow-minded. <laughs> I mean, and I say that as somebody who practices religion. No, I think that's fair though. If you're, I mean, it's just, it's the point that if you stay in a box, you'll always be in the box. So experience is one way, but really the, what you're saying is the point of experience is, is to gain a new perspective. And perspective is really what the catalyst is. Is there, are there other ways besides just, cause not everyone's adventurous. Like Brandon was just saying, not everyone wants to go out and jump out of a plane just to get an adrenaline rush and see what it's like, you know, are there other ways to gain perspective without having to have 
the adventurous experience? Well, I don't think I don't think experience necessarily means adventure. That's that's a big misconception. Um, anything that you do is an experience. So picking up a book from an author you've never read before is an experience. You know, watching um, a YouTube channel that you've never watched before is an experience. It's, it's a way that you are interacting with the world around you. That's what I mean by experience. Yeah, some of us are not very adventurous. You know, by nature, we're just very cautious, you know, hesitant to really put ourselves in risky situations. So any of those kinds of things are still experiences because it's outside of the box. And that's really what I like. I like what you said about if you never get outside of the box, you'll always be in the box. That's a really good way to highlight what an experience is. An experience is you interacting with things outside of your box. I like that. That's really good clarity. So let's put this in coming back to your story of how you started Orwood and you had that wonderful experience with a gentleman with Parkinson's. You were his hands, he was your eyes. There was still progression from there. You didn't just walk out and start getting jobs and building cabinets or things for people, right? Like you, I believe you started with trying to build a whole local community because you needed more insight and things to touch and your own diversity of experience to build your business. Walk us through that short window of progression, if you would, of from that moment of building the rail to Orwood actually being a viable company. Yeah, it was, um, man, was that a ton of work. And I, I made probably the mistake in hindsight of, of trying to run in too many different directions at the same time. But I was, I was gaining so much from all of them that it was, it was hard to let any of it go. But yeah, what I really noticed when I started out was that there was not a lot of great local community for craft workers. There was a lot of great community kind of far flung, you know, through social media and different things like that. But in Denver, we really didn't have a lot that was very good. There is a uh, Colorado Woodworkers Guild. And I, that was the first thing I did was I went to the Woodworkers Guild and I'm like, I need to meet these other people. Unfortunately, the folks who were in the Woodworkers Guild, wonderful people, super nice, super kind, but it was all of the 60, 70 year old retired guys who, you know, built birdhouses for fun. It wasn't quite the same thing I was doing. So I, I looked around a lot and started to really just connect one-on-one with other craft workers and not even just woodworkers, uh, but, you know, blacksmiths and welders. And I met some awesome people who do uh, leaded glass and stained glass work, uh, seamstresses, tailors, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I ended up kind of partnering with another local business uh, called Salvage Design Center. And we started really building this amazing craft community together. The, one of the owners there had this vision of having this uh, craftsman's market and they had a great space to do it. So I partnered with them and we started bringing uh, once a month, bringing craft workers to Salvage Design Center for kind of like a craft fair like you've never seen before. Instead of there just being a bunch of little tchotchkes for sale, every craft worker that came was working live in their booth. 
and showing the craft that they did. The very first month, uh, like we promoted the daylights out of it. And the very first month, we had about four times as many people come as we expected. And normally, like a craft fair like that, people come and they do a lap around, you know, maybe buy something, maybe not, and then they leave. Well, people were staying for like three, four, five hours. <laughs> like it was, it was amazing. And, and afterwards, all the craft workers that were there were just like, I have never had anybody show as much interest in what I do as I have today. Um, and it, that was a phenomenal experience just to be able to bring light uh, onto these people doing craft work and uh, the amazing work they did and showing them at the same time that there are people in our community who care about this and care about what you do. Okay. So you start building this community around you or would isn't really running yet though. I mean, are you getting a bunch of orders just coming in the door as soon as you hang your shingle as a craftsman or what is the entrepreneurship journey there? Because you're running two things here, it feels like. Yeah, I, I really was. I thank God was at least getting paid for the work I was doing at Salvage Design Center and, you know, doing this craftsman market. That kind of helped, you know, subsidize my pipe dream because at that time I was really trying to find a like a retail outlet for the things I was making. And that did not exist, still doesn't exist to this day. There are a lot of places that say they do that until you kind of look behind the curtain and you find out, oh no, this is all manufactured overseas and it's not really unique. So it took me a while to figure out that I'm just going to have to find clients and work with clients one-on-one to uh, you know, like my name says, find solutions for issues in their life. So that's, that's what I started doing finally was really just instead of promoting a product, promoting me and the idea of craftsmanship. And that's when things really uh, took a turn. And I started getting, you know, clients seeking me out and talking to me about their crazy dreams and letting my crazy dream bring life to their crazy dream, which is, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I got to, uh, you know, Travis was actually one of the, one of the first clients really that I had under that. Um, I, I got to build the flight racks for FH East um, out of materials that he had. He was like, Hey, I've got these barrels. Can you do something with them? Yeah. No, and they're awesome um, too. We're still using them and yeah, they're made from, barrels that we aged beer in and then took apart and, and got the staves and the bands. And then you took them and made, uh, made flight holders out of them. They're really cool. I, it was a super fun project and I was super excited because it was really the, the first project I got to do exactly what I wanted to do, which was this idea of taking materials you had and turning them into something useful, um, and giving them new life using, some pretty old school techniques, which was really fun. I think what really changed for me though, was uh, after doing a few, a few projects for clients, Brandon, you and I were talking about what my business was and what, what was about. And one of the things that really came to light was this idea of story and that what I was doing was was largely about story. It was the story of the materials 
And it was the story of these age old craft techniques that were used to bring new life to those materials. So what I started to do was I started to give a name to each of my custom pieces that I made for clients. They each get a name and I wrote a story about them, about the materials and about the, the craft work that created this new thing with a new life and a new energy and now a new name. And that, that was the big game changer. That was probably the biggest game changer for Orwood Solutions was that caught on like wildfire. And all of my clients started posting about their projects by name. You know, they, they referred to, uh, uh, to Mary Bell and they referred to um, Philo and, you know, all these projects by name. And we're just talking about how much joy this brought into their lives. And people started to like notice that and be like, oh, wow, this is, this is different. This isn't just stuff. That's such a cool business concept. I love it. It is. It's bringing a personal and a human element to a project. Yeah. So we're all about being in the right place at the right time. What is being in your current place look like? How is Orwood Solutions doing? What What's on the horizon? Well, um, I, I think this brings this brings us to my favorite part of this podcast that I've heard you talk to others about, uh, which is the magic word failure. Um, right now, I am working, I'm just finishing up what will be my penultimate project for Orwood Solutions. I have one more that I'm doing and then I'm gonna close the doors. You're shutting it down. And I'm shutting it down. What's happened? There, there have been a lot of factors that have kind of changed. One, I think obviously like starting a new business in a, you know, that's not dealing with necessity, but rather essentially luxury um, during the time of COVID. Not great. Not, not really awesome timing. <laughs> um, but also in that time frame as well, um, I moved from our house in Inglewood, where I had a thousand square foot garage. I could build some stuff in a thousand square foot garage. And now we've moved up to Longmont into a house that doesn't really have what I need to be able to make the kinds of projects I do. I don't have the space I really need to be able to do these things. And so it's, I can see the writing on the wall. Like I was able to make it through COVID because, you know, we had things like student loan payments that were deferred. I didn't have to worry about making that payment. So we kind of get by, you know, on just the little bit that was coming in through Orwood and my wife's job. But I know that the, that is coming to an end. You know, we're going to have to start paying on those again. And now that people are starting to be interested again, the problem is my materials costs are about four times what they were two years ago. And that's wood and metal both. Like everything is just, I, I have lost more projects in the past two months because of what my materials costs are uh, than anything else. Uh, people are just like, yeah, that's, you know, I, I can't pay $2,000 in lumber alone, you know, for my new wardrobe or table or whatever. And it's going to be a hot minute till that 
stabilizes. So what I've looked at is I got to put myself in the right place. And what that right place is, is making sure that I can do what I want to do at some point. That point's just not right now. And that's okay. So if I can do some stuff right now to, you know, make sure our student loans are paid off, make sure that um, we're in a, in a housing situation where I, I have the space to do what I want, you know, if I can put myself in that place, then when I, when I go at crack number two, I'll, I'll be set up to do it correctly and to do it well and to do it long-term. So that's what I've had to come to realize here pretty recently is that if I, if I continue down this path as I am right now, I'm not going to be in the right place. I'm not going to be where I want to be. I'm going to be dealing with constant and heinous struggle to just get by. And that's not the point. Like that's not, even if I keep the business open for eight more years and I do it that way, to me, that's not success. That is failure. Closing now and taking the time to do the things I need to do to be able to do this successfully in the future, that's success to me. And it's kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of people think about success and failure. Yeah, that is such an interesting perspective the right place in this situation is not necessarily the happy place. Um, it, it's a place that's setting you up to get to the, the place where you're happy again. Yeah. And that's, I think it's hard to understand because we do live in a time of instant gratification. I want what I want and I want it now. But the fact is that's just not the way the world works. And, and we used to, to know that, I think, a little bit more than we do now. I look at it kind of in terms of, if, if you think about playing video games, when we, you know, when we were kids playing on the old school NES system, you know, if you're, if you're on Super Mario 3 and you run out of lives and it pops up game over, you know, you, what'd you, you do? You gotta start You over. stand up, <laughs> you stand up, you spike that controller, Drink some Mountain Dew, sit back down in your beanbag <laughs> chair and start over. That's all that meant. It didn't mean that your, your, super, your Nintendo was going to self-destruct, that you could never play the game again. That's not what it meant. It just meant this attempt is over and you can try again. And that's, you know, that's where I'm at. And that's where I think a lot of people lose sight of, of the true meaning of success and failure. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I, I've had a similar situation. And I, I think we talk a lot about on this podcast about putting in the work so that you can get to that place where you're successful. A lot of people would think, well, Chili put in the work. Like he did the, you did the rail and you partnered with this guy who taught you the trade and you did all of that work with salvage centers and like you've put in the work and now you have Orwood solutions. And now like that's supposed to be the path, right? But I'm in a similar situation where I put in the work at the brewery and we did this huge expansion and then COVID hit and like all of the dollars that we'd made in the last year and a half just went to keeping us open. And so now I'm in a position where I have to do a bunch of work again to get where, to get back on, on track. Like we're, I'm working right now. We just got approved last week to, to switch our brewing license to a brew pub and I'm 
about to build out a whiskey house, which I swore I would never do another construction project in my life. But here I am doing another construction project because that is the right place that's going to get me back on track to where I want to be in the future. Um, so just because you put in the work up front, sometimes things change and you gotta, you gotta put in the work again. It, it doesn't just mean because I worked really hard in the first place. Now it's just going to be success from here on out. Yeah, that's, I think that's a symptom of, of a misconception of what success and failure are. A lot of people conceive of success and failure as outcomes and outcomes are permanent. That's not the case. Success and failure are events. They're blips along the timeline. You have successes, you have failures. You are not a success. You are not a failure. You're a human being. That's it. You have successes and failures along the way. So yeah, you had a success in, in keeping you know, growth in, in FH and, you know, getting to this point of expansion and, and building FHEs, that was a tremendous, amazing success. And then more shit happens and, and you are going to work towards a new success or a new failure. And that's all we're doing all the time is we're working from one success to the next one or to the next failure. And it, all it is, is this little event that passes by. I really like this as a belief system, which we know are hard to change. So somebody that has this other idea of what success looks like as outcomes based or failure, right? Like yours, if I'm shutting down the doors, I would think, okay, I failed. Why would I want to come back to this? That failure puts that barrier on like, this isn't even possible to go past this part. So for somebody that is kind of in that mindset, what would you say to them to get past that and try to reframe that these are blips on the radar, not in games. Um, I think you have to, you have to stop subscribing to other people's definitions of success and failure. You are the only person who gets to determine what success looks like to you. You're the only one who gets to make the metrics to make the consequences and to know your motivation. That's that you're the only one who owns that. And so as long as you subscribe to other people's definitions, you're, you're going to be in that constant failure and you're never going to be able to move past it. But if when you start to look at what you truly feel success is and what failure is, then it's so much easier to see those things as, as passing moments. So for example, for me, for Orwood Solutions, it's really easy to take you know, the societal norms and apply it to Orwood Solutions and say that it was a failure because I'm going to close the doors. For me, though, I, I look at when I started the business, I said, I want to do business a certain way. You know, I want to have integrity in my business. I want to do uh, I want to build projects that that change people's quality of life. Um, I want to be responsible with my materials. And the biggest one for me was that I wanted to get up every morning and be excited about my work. So if I look at those things, those metrics that I created for myself, and I look back at, at what has been over the past three years, it was massively successful. Like, 
I made projects that people love and they cherish and it changed their everyday lives. Um, I was always open and honest and I had integrity in the way I did business. And I used materials that people thought were garbage. Like, awesome. Uh, how's that a failure? That's such a good way to think about success is what's the lifestyle this is going to give me. And I think there's also something to be said that looking back on three years, knowing that it's not longevity, you stole three years out of the middle that could have catapulted you. And that, that three years doesn't go away. All that experience you built, you were a toddler, like you learned how to craft in that. So you gained so much inside experience that doesn't just die when you shut the doors. So what does this look like next though, if you are going to close Orwood, because you want to come back to this, you're going to have to keep your skills sharp. But you also got to go do something else, you said, because you got to pay some bills. What is the evolution of deciding what that looks like? You had these values around Orwood of I want to get up every day and enjoy my job. Like, is that realistic going out into the job market, knowing that you're so entrepreneurial? No, that's um, it's it's a whole new set of of goals and and metrics for what this venture uh, back into the job force looks like. So you know, I don't have those all fleshed out yet. I, I do have some things kind of ironed out about what I um, require of myself throughout this experience, because that's really all I control is myself. That's a new kind of, I'm setting up new metrics for what success and failure look like in this next stage. And ultimately, you know, the, the big success that'll come out of that is being set up to take the next journey in my craft work, which is not going to be, you know, the same thing I've been doing because I didn't always want Orwood solutions to be just building furniture and, and architectural, you know, pieces. If, if that's the goal I set my, for myself for the rest of my life, man, I would be bored out of my mind. Um, that would just be, that's not for me. I need progression and growth. And, and really the next big step was kind of this holy grail project um, that I wanted to work on. And I'm going to start working on that while I am back in the job market, because that holy grail project is going to become the basis for my next evolution in business. The next evolution, you already have the next evolution of Orwood already hashed out? Um, it won't be that name anymore. Uh, but yeah, I already know what the next evolution is. I know where I'm going. Wow. Let's just say it's going to combine my passions uh, for craft work and collector cars. Nail biting. Hang on that suspense. <laughs> it's going to be I, fun. I can see a pretty, yeah. pretty sweet it's... Soapwood Derby car coming or something here. <laughs> nice. Feel the rhythm. Awesome. Feel the rhyme. Rocket powered Soapwood. Uh, <laughs> so we're, uh... what a... I know I personally struggle with determining and defining what success looks like for me. And I would, I would imagine that's a pretty common problem. How do you approach that in the first place? How, like, how do you sit down and say, okay, this is what success means to me. And this is what it's going to take for me to be successful. And to, to be honest and clear about that, how do you, how do you do like, do you have questions you ask? Do you have systems that you have in place to, to hash that out? So my systems that are in place are, are my personal values. That's where I always start. 
in, in determining success because my set of, of values is what defines me uh, as a person to a very large extent. And so to be successful is to align with those values and principles. When I depart from those is when I have failed. And, and I do, trust me, I, I depart from those frequently and I fail frequently and I have to face that and come to an understanding of why it's a failure. But then I pick myself up, dust myself off and say, okay, well, how am I going to do better next time? It takes a lot of a very conscious thought and self you know, evaluation to really know what your values are as a person. But I think that's where you absolutely have to start to determine what is success and what is failure for you. Define personal values for us a little bit. What do you mean by my own personal values? So some of those things are kind of morality-based. Um, so for me, like I said with Orwood, one of my big things was doing business with integrity, you know, not lying and cheating customers, things like that. You know, that's that's a personal value that I look at in determining success. But then it's other things like I want to be a good steward of, of creation. I want to be a good steward of the world in which we live. So that's a value I have that is going to steer whether I'm being successful or not. So going forward, as I go back out into the job market, if, if I look at that that personal value of caring for creation, then I'm probably not going to look for a job in the oil and gas industry. I'm probably not going to look for a job at a plastic bottle manufacturer. Like it just doesn't align with my values. And if I ended up doing that, even though I might pay off my debt and I might put myself in position to, you know, take this next step in my business, I will have failed because I broke myself as a person to do it. I sold my soul to do it. So when you start to really look at, at, and this is really heady and kind of philosophical stuff, but you have to really boil down the essence of who you are and who you want to be before you can really come up with those structures for success and failure. And I think you said the practical experience or the practical piece of that is the conscious thought, asking yourself those questions. Who do I want to be? Who am I? What matters to me? Yeah. I mean, is it really that simple? It It's that simple. That doesn't mean it's easy. There's, there's that saying again. I say <laughs> no, that all the yeah. time. Simple yeah. does not mean easy. If you do this, honestly, if you do this work very truthfully and honestly, you will find yourself at odds with yourself through the process. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this in a very, uh, not necessarily a flippant way, but it's not, you know, earth shattering or anything. Uh, a couple, uh, a little over a year and a half ago, it was shortly after we moved up to Longmont. We have uh, a delivery service that delivers our milk to us, Longmont Dairy. It's awesome. So there's a cooler on our front porch that they deliver our milk to. Well, we had a milk thief 
who twice came by in the middle of the night after milk was delivered before I brought it in and stole our milk delivery. A human person that was doing this. My initial reaction uh, was I was livid and I was like, I'm going to catch this guy. And I did. I caught him in the act and I chased him three blocks down the street in bare feet because I was PO'd massively. For the record, how tall are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am five, six, you know, 145 pounds. I'm, I'm not necessarily intimidating until I yell. When I get really mad and I yell, like my voice drops like two octaves and I sound really intimidating. That's my only benefit. But I'm a feisty little Italian, so I didn't care. So I went chasing after him and, you know, he finally ducked into the shadows and I couldn't find him. Um, and I came back home and then I sat down at home and I thought about what I just did. And I realized that my actions, even though there was part of me that was like, I'm totally justified in doing this. This guy's stealing from me. He's coming onto my property and stealing from me. The other part of me that knows who I am in my truest sense and who I want to be was like, you have no idea who this person is. What if this person has lost their job, has no hope, and has six kids at home that he's got to feed? I have no idea what this person's you know, circumstances are. And I knew that the way I acted did not line up with who I was and who I wanted to be. And it took me three days to come to terms with that argument within myself of, okay, well, was I, was I right or was I wrong? Those are the kinds of things you're going to argue with yourself about as you go through this process. So yeah, it's really simple to say, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. But there are other parts of your brain that are going to be screaming at you that you're wrong. So it's simple to say that it's not easy to figure it out. How do you combat that voice? Because I don't think that's just in the context of your personal values. Well, maybe it is because whenever I say, hey, I'm either I'm, I am or not going to go to the gym, there's another voice in there calling me an idiot for not going or a, or a loser for going, you know, whatever. <laughs> Like, how do you combat that voice to get the correct momentum so that your actions actually align with those values? Yeah. It's a good question because I will say that I'm, I'm fairly good at having those honest conversations about some things and I'm really bad about having them about other things. Um, I'm never going to talk myself into going to the gym. Never, never. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I've tried. No, nope, not going to happen. But I, I think that part of that is because we, we tend to focus too narrow-mindedly on things. So if you're focusing on go to the gym, you have to think about, okay, what's the true purpose here? What is, what do I really want? What's really important about going to the gym? And you might find that, well, I, I know I need to live a healthier life. I'm not living a healthy life right now. So then maybe you know, back that out a few steps and say, okay, well, is the gym the only way to live a healthier life? No, maybe I can do some other things that really get at this want or need. Or maybe when you ask yourself, what's the purpose of going to the gym, you're going to find that it's something like, well, because, you know, I want to have a six pack like so-and-so does. Okay, well, does that really matter at all? You know, you, you have to have those constant 
conversations and arguments, just kind of picking apart your own thoughts and asking questions of your own thoughts. You have to be a journalist. And, and I'm not talking modern day journalist. I'm talking old school gumshoe, you know, on the street with your notepad journalist asking questions nobody wants you to ask. Well, there's a million questions that you don't want to ask yourself. You have to ask them to find out your true intentions and purposes and values. So it, it, it does apply to all those things, you know, whether it's uh, working out or relationships, like for me, that's a hard one because I have a temper like you would not believe. And I have to constantly ask myself, like, why am I mad about this? You know, did, did my wife really do something that was really that bad? Or, or is there something else going on? What am I, you know, I have to pick apart that thought process in my own head. So it applies, I think, to all aspects of life. And some areas I think are even harder than others to really do that with. And it varies by person. But it is, at the end of the day, a repeatable practice. Oh, heavens, yes. Heavens, yes. Um, the easiest way, I think, for me to, to engage that process is a, a really, really, really simple process. And it's to ask why five times. Like, it's one of the first things you learn about problem solving is that you need to find the root cause. The easiest way to find the root cause is to ask why five times. By five times, generally, you will have found the root cause. Give us an example. Oh, man, that's on the spot. Um, what are you struggling with right now? Let's, let's do some counseling. So let's, yeah, let's actually talk about this this process of shutting the doors at Orwood. Okay. As I was coming you know, to terms with that, as I still am coming to terms with it, the thing I've struggled with the most is that logically I know I'm doing the right thing, but emotionally it still hurts. It's still difficult. It's a conflict within myself. So part of me is saying, no, keep going, dummy. The other ones, the other part of me is saying, no, you got this. Like, just take a step back and We'll come back to it. So I have to figure out why my head is fighting me. So I, I literally ask myself, well, why am I mad about closing the doors? What, why am I hurt? And the first you know, response is because I feel like a failure. Okay, well, why do you feel like a failure? Well, because I'm going to have to go back to work for somebody else. Well, why is that a problem? Because I said once upon a time I was never going to do that again. Well, why did you say that? Well, because I was hurt. I was, I was at a point in my life where I was hurt by an employer. And, and so I just tried to get away from it. So I'm realizing now, okay, this fight is rooted in something that happened four years ago. Is that still pertinent? Does it mean anything? Or, or is this something that I can let go of? to look at what's ahead. That's a great practice. So you, you have to get to that root cause of things. I'll, we can use the gym as another one. Like I, I tried for a long time to make myself work out. Said, you got to work out. Okay, well, why do I want to work out? Well, because I used to have a washboard you know, stomach when I was in college and high school. Well, why does that matter? It doesn't. Oh, okay. 
I only needed a couple wise. Then do I really need to go to the gym? No. Then stop beating yourself up about it. Who cares? Uh, I love it. That's a, that's, I've, I've never heard that system before, but man, that is so practical. And it's super simple. It's super simple, but I do recommend that you do it at a time when you're alone and nobody else is around, or you will look like a nutter. <laughs> Wait, do you, so is part of this doing it out loud? I do it out loud. Okay. <laughs> I bet like I was going to say, and I think you tried journaling for a while and that didn't work for you, but that is my, where I ask myself questions. I just write a question and then walk away from it and come back and ponder it and write on it. But that the practice of why I want to come back to that, because th there's a key part that we touched on earlier that you didn't say in there, but is very important is the honesty of your answer to yourself. Cause you can say, Oh, having a six pack doesn't matter, but and I'm not going to like, that doesn't make you necessarily a shallow person. If that matters to you, if that's something that's important to you, then that's your answer. Like, that's okay. Like uh, if one of your values is to be successful monetarily, financially, like that's not a problem if it's honest with who you are. It's whenever we start to impose those things because society says that's what's important that we've got to make sure we can delineate with when we're answering the why that we ask ourselves. Yeah, spot on. You do, you have to learn to be honest with yourself in those answers. And that's, that's where the not easy part comes in. Because it's really easy, you know, in 15 seconds for me to throw out these whys and the responses. But in reality, so I actually have been using my journal for this. I, I found out that what I need to use my journal for is these conversations that I have with myself. So if you, if you flip open my journal, there's me with a capital M and there's me with a lowercase M and it's written like a dialogue and there's no dates on it because it might take me two weeks to have this conversation with myself. Honestly, do we need to medicate you? Are you okay? Probably, probably, I, probably not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a clinical diagnosis for what I do. But, I mean, it sounds like this is a more healthy dialogue with oneself than I hear about most people. That's having, true. So I, I, I think you're true. okay. <laughs> yeah. I just, I found out that I don't work as a monologue when I journal. I'm not a monologue journaler. I have a dialogue going on in my head between different parts of myself. Um, and so that's how I have to journal which is incredibly helpful for me because then I can go back and look at those things mm. and I'll look at a conversation that's only halfway done. And, and I can say, am I being honest with myself? You know, I can really hold myself to it and say, okay, is this really true? So that I, I find that incredibly helpful. So what have you defined for Orwood solution or not? We know Orwood shutting down. We know that you have your future project on the horizon where you're going to combine your couple passions but you don't know when that's going to start, right? I have, I have some hope, like I have loose timeline, loose timeline. I, I gave myself a very loose timeline of four to eight years. Oh, okay. The reason for that is that there are some external factors that as much as I don't like, I don't have control over. I am a control freak. I, I want to have control of everything. I want to write like to the date, how things are going to go. But I've had to come to learn that that's not, it's not realistic. And all I'm doing is setting myself up to be angry and frustrated when I do that. 
So I have kind of a loose goal of four to eight years. And some of that has to do with uh, my wife's job. Like she's not going to be at her current call for 30 years. That's just, I know that's not reality. So there may be a move in there. You know, we may end up relocating at some point in that four to eight years. And that will change, you know, my plans a bit. So I just kind of have a loose timeline and I have steps lined out of what can I be doing in the meantime, you know, as I'm working a job, paying off bills, what are the things I can be working on to also bring me closer to that next goal, to that next iteration of my business? How did you go about laying out those steps? So I looked at what I wanted to do. Um, and looked at what my biggest struggles were when I did Orwood. And I, I realized, okay, you know, I started with no customer base at all. It was just a, I want to do this and, you know, build it and they will come kind of approach, which works great if you're Kevin Costner, not great if you're me, not, not great at all. Um, I needed a James Earl Jones in this process and I did not have him. <laughs> He's out there. I think we all keep looking. We all, we all need a James Earl Jones. Yes. If you take nothing away from this podcast, but this, you need to find your James Earl Jones. It's going to be the trailer. Well, I, I know what the name of this episode is. Find your James Earl so, Jones. So I looked at those things and I said, okay, well, what can I do to address those issues? Those big issues I had, you know, when I started Orwood how can I start addressing those before I even open the doors of the next venture? And so I identified problems and said, what, how can I work on solutions before I even get to the point of saying open for business? So is that just skills gaps? Is that, is it marketing for the business? What is, give us a little bit of context. Um, you guys are, you guys are drilling in on what this is. Um, okay. Well, no, we don't have to go into that, but. Oh, well, here, here's, okay. We're just going to, we're going to go for it. All so right. The next, the next iteration is, is going to be custom coach works. So coach works. yeah. So back in the day in the 1920s, thirties, when you bought a car, you generally bought a chassis. You bought the frame and the motor and the axles, wheels, and, and that chassis went to a coach works that built the body for the car. That's the way it worked for a lot of manufacturers. And that's how we end up with, um, you know, 40 different Rolls Royces from 1928 that all look completely different because they were built by 14 different coach works manufacturers. Rolls Royce is just the motor and chassis. I'm going to be doing some coach works but the bodies are all going to be wood. What? So think about like a really old, like Chris Craft or Riva um, wooden boat. Boat, yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm going. So you're telling me I'm going to have the first ever wooden Lamborghini? No. No, but you will have the first ever, <laughs> no. if you so desire, the first ever uh, Cholino Coachworks wooden car. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's it's going to be pretty awesome. So what I recognize, like when we talk about that, um, that issue with customer base, 
if I've got 48 years, I can say right now, I know it's going to take me conservatively two to two and a half years to build my first car as I'm working full time. So I've got two, two and a half years there that I'm going to build the first one. After that, I've got at least one and a half years that I can take that thing to car show after car show after car show and get it known and start writing down names. You want one? Awesome. I'll add you to the list. $5,000 deposit. There you go. Like I can start working on that before I ever produce. Okay. So those are the gaps that you want to close. Things like that. There is a skills gap, you know, like, yeah, I could just build one right now, but there are things that I want to do in that vehicle that I don't necessarily have as much experience with that I want. So I'm going to just start working on those things to do stupid little projects around my house. I'm going to have the most over-engineered furniture in my house, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just to work on those skills. Okay. So you've kind of got your long-term vision already and you've got some steps laid out. Your next right step is just making more furniture. Yeah. In a different way and working on getting my personal finances and things like that in order to be able to comfortably have the room to work on this. And I love it. I love the mindset. I love that you're, you know, closing the doors to this one chapter and already thinking about the next chapter with potential. Yeah, and with- it's, just, it's just hit and reset is all we're doing. Like to, to go back to that, you know, that idea of sitting down playing Nintendo, you know, the game's over for this game, but I can start a new one. Like I'm going to, I'm going to start on the next game. It may not even be the same game, but I can play again. And that's where I'm at. I think the biggest, the biggest thing we, the biggest indicator of where this mind, you know, shift kind of came in was uh, like 1990. Do you remember what little device you added to your Nintendo around 1990? Game Genie, baby. You got it. You got it. We started teaching children to fear game over. Weird. I know I had one. Think about that. You dirty We're cheater. Start looking back and defining those moments as a kid where we just fell apart and it was because of the game genie. What the heck? <laughs> oh, this is great. I haven't thought about game genie yeah. in a while. <laughs> I love that. I love that mentality though. Like I'm just resetting. I can play the same game. I can go again. And if you think about it that way, it evolves that way. Typically you start a game, you get through maybe first couple levels next time, three, four, six, seven, eight, never get to eight because you keep dying and then you just quit and find something else to do. That's how life works is what you're telling us. (laughs) Yeah. You can, you can come back and play that same game as many times as you want. You can throw in a different cartridge and play a different game. That's all game over means. Is there something that led you to this philosophy? Did you, because it sounds like you were very ambitious 11 year old with your trailer down at the local home Depot soliciting for work or whatever you were doing. How did you get this mindset of, I can go again. I can, I can do more. I can, uh, this isn't a failure. It's just a stepping stone to the next piece. Because for a lot of people, that first failure, it's like, well, that I don't have the skill set to do that. So I'm done. Um, it's recent. It's very recent that I've, that I've come to this and understood this. 
this way. My natural wiring is that I am a perfectionist, a crippling perfectionist, which I inherited from my dad. I mean, it was so bad that, well, generally things came really easy to me as a kid, like school and stuff came easy to me. So I, I didn't have a framework for accepting, you know, less than perfect. When I got a little bit older and I really started to challenge myself in school, um, what I noticed was that I would rather take a zero for an assignment and not turn it in rather than turn it in and get a B. It had to be perfect. It had to be 100%. That was my mindset. And I carried that with me for a long time through high school, through college, after college, that was my mindset is that if it's not perfect, don't do it. Like, and, and that was crippling and, and it really ruined me in a lot of different ways um, until I recognized it, you know, had somebody help call it out in me and say, you know, you realize this is a problem, like this is what you're doing. And it wasn't until then that I could start to really work on it and see that, okay, not a big deal. And the hugest thing that helped me with that was my work at the ropes course in Dubuque, because I had to help people through these very, very tangible fears of heights and fear of failure on the ropes course. So what I would walk people through is an understanding of what was around them, first of all. Say, so, okay, take a look at what's around you. You got a harness on. You got a rope attached to you. You've got telephone poles that are buried 10 foot in the ground and you have steel cables everywhere. I said, that rope that's attached to you is the weakest part of this entire system. And it is, it is engineered, designed and checked every day to hold over 25,000 pounds of force. If you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, when your body hits the ground, it will not hit the ground with that much force. So you have no way of breaking that rope. So did you see those steel cables up there? Those are the same steel cables they use to stop aircraft on aircraft carriers. You're not going to take it anywhere. So if you fall, if you don't complete this obstacle and you fall off, you fail, what's the worst thing that happens? You know, and so you coach people through this through this terrifying moment to realize that the worst thing that's gonna happen is you lower me back down to the ground and I get to make the decision. Nobody makes it for me. I'm the only one who makes the decision whether I wanna try again or not. That's what failure looks like. Wow, that's nothing. And in coaching people through that, I started to process that more in myself. I started to step back and, and say honestly to myself, what is failure really? What happens in this worst case scenario in my head? Does it really ever play out that way? What is reality? Um, and that's, that's what helped me get to this. That's great. Something that is always taught is there's always way more learning whenever you start teaching others these type of skills and practices. And then you, wait a minute, am I being hypocritical about that? Or can I put this into practice in my own life? That's awesome. Yep. Travis, anything else to add today? Well, I mean, I, I would ask you what's coming up, but we've already gone there. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. What does the job search look like? Cause you haven't been in that world for four or five years now, right? Yeah. It's, it's been a little while. There's gotta be some growing pains there. Yes. And no, uh, there's, you know, there's a veneer that changes, but, but the real substance of it is, is the same. There might be some new vernacular, you know, some new buzzwords that you need to throw in here and there, but, but the reality of what, what I'm looking for in an employer and what an employer is looking for in a quality employee, the meat and potatoes of that is still the same. I'm not sure that I'm following that. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like the, be hungry. Cause are you asking about the process period? Just what it's like to look for. A no, job I mean, or? you're like, you're getting back into a workforce that I'm not worried that you won't be able to find a job where you can leverage your skills in the workforce, but going back to the workforce is is a change of lifestyle. It's a change of mindset. It's there's a lot that goes to that personally. And you got to pack meat and potatoes for lunch every day. I thought you just said, (laughs) this sounds taxing. (laughs) Some, some meat and potatoes for lunch. I got to pack snacks. It's like going back to school. (laughs) No, it's a, it it is a bit daunting. Um, The thing that I'm struggling with in it is is deciding what I what I have to keep from my current life, what I am not willing to uh, budge on, and then what am I willing to be flexible on, you know, for the next four to eight years to be able to make this dream happen. That's what's really difficult is is making those determinations. Like, is it really really absolutely important that I can just you know, pick up and go somewhere whenever I want. Um, I, I feel like it is like, that's, you know, been my lifestyle for the past four years working for myself. I can do what I want when I want, but then I look at, well, how often do I really do that? Like not very often at all. So I guess that's probably something I can be flexible on. Yeah. Back to that honesty conversation, right? Because you could, allow that to get in your way of going back in the workforce. You could definitely justify some of those things. It feels like. Yeah. Now what I can't change, what I, the things I'm not willing to give up, you know, are those, those core value things. Those, um, you know, I want to do something that makes people's lives better. That doesn't look like any one thing. Uh, that could be, you know, the organization I'm working for, that could be, uh, the people that I'm managing. You know, if, if, if as a leader, I am improving their quality of life, that's great. Like that fulfills a need and a value that I have. It's a good philosophy. It works everywhere. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a matter of getting to that philosophy. Um, that's the hard part. Like, I wish I had had this, this kind of, uh, insight to myself at the last place I was working. I, I, I see so many things that I could have and would have approached differently um, had I had this. But you failed. But I failed. <laughs> oh boy, did I. Like, that's the other thing. I'll, I'll just say this about failure. Like, it, it, the other side of the coin is people who say, you know, well, you never fail as long as you get up and you try again. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> you failed <laughs> like 
there's nothing wrong with that though. That's that's the big difference of what I'm saying is I'm not saying that failure doesn't exist. I'm not saying that, you know, that as long as you get up and try again, you're okay. I'm not saying that failure exists. You have to recognize that and and you know, call it out for what it is. Just stop being afraid of it and start to see the value in it and and the lessons from it. Um, because if you set a goal and you don't make it, you failed. I'm sorry. I don't care what your third grade teacher says. I don't care what your T-ball coach says. You failed, but it's okay. Joey Chilino, where do people find you since Orwood Solutions isn't going to be open when this comes out? Or can they access some stuff still through Orwood? They can still access some stuff, um, at least for a while. I'm still going to keep my Instagram uh, up, which is Orwood CS and my website's Orwood Solutions. Uh, or if you just want to find me as a human being, uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Chili Chilino. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one. Chili, this was fantastic. You gave us some wonderful insights. Thanks for being so personal with your story of what's happening next and where you're at. I think we can wrap it up here. Thanks for being a guest today. Thank you, boys. Pleasure as always.